if you happen to have a electronic device, please put that to silent at this time. As Norman said, we do have David Recton back with us this evening, and he's chosen to speak to us about what God says about a strong church. David Recton <clears throat> was born in Tulsa, and he has a whole string of letters behind his name. OK, BA, OCMA, and ACU. I don't know what all those are, but evidently he must be smarter than me. <laughs> David's been preaching for 50 years, 37 of them at the Senior Avenue Church of Christ, uh, which is now on Clark Road up in uh, Duncanville. We're, great that you, we're, we're grateful that you're here with us tonight, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you, David. Yeah, that song. Boy, is it ever. You might want to adjust. Uh, being a typical church, most of you decided to sit more than halfway back, and I just didn't see any point in being up there. I don't suppose this has got wheels. So I'll just do it from here, but hopefully it won't be too loud. Let's have a prayer before we begin our study. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. We ask that you would help us as we look at your word. Help us to be submissive to your word and obedient to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, well, technically, I did choose this, but realistically, I didn't. Uh, he contacted me, and he said, here are the subjects, and pick one. And I said, okay, I'll pick this one. And he wrote back and said, well, that one's already been picked. And so I got second choice, and it was second on the list, but that's all right. Uh, so they asked me to... to uh, spend some time with you this evening on what God has said about building a strong church. Uh, before we get into the meat of that, uh, two uh, people I need to mention specifically. One is Joyce Wheeler. Uh, Tommy was my song leader for 15 years, and we just had such a great relationship. Worked together very well and worked. Uh, he got me into the recording studio with him and uh, we, we did that off and on for about three years. Of course, we missed Tommy. And then you got Jerry Dobson here. And uh, Jerry and I have had a good relationship for a long time. His daddy and I served together for 10 years as elders. That's the only time I've ever done that. He's probably the only man that would ever let me do that. And those were 10 of the most enjoyable years that uh, I've ever spent uh, in the work in the Lord's Church, uh, not just because I was an elder, but because we had such simpatico thinking that I don't remember a time when we uh, ever differed about anything. And uh, so I've always liked uh, Jerry and the rest of that family. Uh, Loved his, loved his mother. She was different. And uh, we, we had a great 
relationship. Okay. I know you didn't come to hear that, but. A strong church. In the Old Testament, there are 30 different words that are translated strong or strength or some derivation of those two. And there's one, and I was hoping uh, David would be here tonight because I'm not sure that I can pronounce any Hebrew word, let alone this one, but I think it's ma'otz. And uh, that is the word, <coughs> excuse me, that seems to be particularly uh, associated with the Lord. Uh, almost every time it's used, it's talking about the strength of the Lord. For example, in uh, the 27th Psalm, in the first verse, the Lord is my might and my salvation, or Lord is my light, excuse me, and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? But the word that's translated defense there is found in the very next psalm, and there it's translated strength. And that's because the word is translated a number of ways, but it's always in relation to the Lord. In the New Testament, the basic word is dunamis. This is the one that's in uh, Romans 1 and verse 16, the power of the gospel. Usually it's translated power. Sometimes it's translated uh, strength, not very often, but it is the same word. And so when we're talking about strength in the church, we're talking about something that involves the Lord first, and because it's used so often, is particularly important to us. The church, in the universal sense, brethren in Africa, brethren in Asia, brethren in North America, and the church in the local sense, the downtown congregation, the Clark Road congregation, and however many others there are in this immediate area, are all with the same needs. Uh, we all need the oversight of the Lord. We all need, uh, you know, any number of things. But all of the needs are the same. And so what I want us to look at tonight is, first, what the strength of the Lord is not. And then we'll come down uh, from there. How do you go about defining the strength of the Lord? How do you go about defining a strong church? A strong church, by virtue of what Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a, unto a man who built a house on a rock. And consequently, the foundation is important. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But we have a problem in the world. We've had a problem in the late 20th and the 21st centuries of defining and identifying the church, number one. But number two, what constitutes a strong church? Now, from the outside, as the world views it, as the world views it, a strong church is identified by numbers. It is identified by the number of members. It is identified by the number of people who attend services, if you're talking about the local church. Uh, for years, 
I've run into people who have said I'm a member of XYZ Church because uh, they have the most members of any church in the world uh, in terms of the totality of their church. There are several congregations of various denominations, mostly one, but there are some others uh, in the Dallas area that have membership roles of twenty to 30,000 people. Now, they don't have twenty to 30,000 people in attendance on Sunday. They usually have somewhere between three to five, but they have on the rolls twenty to 30,000 people. Just the other day, there was an article in the, in, in the paper or on the computer, I can't remember which, but it was talking about a church in the North Mid-Cities area and said it's the largest uh, congregation in the United States. They've got 32,000 members. Well, they don't have 32,000 on Sunday, but you understand what they're saying. We do the same thing. Uh, we, ju we just have different categories. Uh, a strong church has, well, our strongest churches have 2,000 plus. There's only about five of those. And then our really good churches have over 1,000 people. And this is the way we judge it. Sometimes they judge it by the building and the size of the building. Sometimes it is judged by uh, the, the amount of the contribution. Uh, I don't know. Again, I, if David was here, I would have asked him. I don't know what the largest contribution in Churches of Christ is on a weekly basis anywhere. Uh, I'm going to guess somewhere there's probably a congregation with a contribution of thirty to forty thousand dollars a week. Given our circumstances, that's not really all that great. Uh, our little congregation averages about twenty-eight hundred dollars a week, and we don't have anywhere near a thousand folks. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure that that's a, a valid measurement. And then a few years ago, well, it's been. 30 to 35 now, we got on a kick, especially in the Christian Chronicle, but it was across the board, and we started recognizing churches that baptized 100 people in a year, which was okay, except that the number became the thing, as opposed to the baptism. Finally, I had one guy that was honest enough to say, and they'd led this thing for seven or eight years in a row, and he said, what we found is, is we'd bring them into the baptistry in one door, and they'd go out the other door, and we'd never see them again. I'd already figured that out. They baptized 1,500 people in five years, and they still only had 1,200 members. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't take long to see something's not right here. So there are a lot of ways, both within and without the church, that we determine what a strong church is. Not necessarily correct, Nonetheless, we do it. And then within the church itself, we may have just a little bit of shading on some of these things. We judge a strong church based on its wealth. We've had for all of our history, beginning with the restoration movement and coming forward, we've had for all of our history churches that in comparison to the society in which they were in are wealthy churches. And they are able to uh, do more financially in relation to benevolence, in relation to mission work, simply because they have more to work with. And that's a good thing if they do it. But wealth is also a temptation. And Jesus said individually, and then later on he will say collectively. You know, he said that some of the seed doesn't grow because 
the concerns of this world and riches choke out the good seed. And then he told the church in Laodicea, he said, you say you are wealthy, but you are impoverished. You say, I have need of nothing. Uh, the attitude that can come as a result of wealth within the church is not necessarily a good thing. It can be, but it is not necessarily. Some churches are determined by the amount of talent that is available. Uh, from the from the pulpit to the classroom. A few years ago, one of our uh, churches in one of our technically advanced areas, uh, even here in the state of Texas, uh, decided that they would wire the building. They had seven or eight engineers, and they could put a computer screen in every classroom. Well, it's a good thing, I guess. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. But they were very proud that they had enough uh, technology that they could do that. Uh, I had a congregation once where we had four, four men who were capable of leading and singing. Now we had one that was just over the top. I mean, he was really great. But we had three other guys, which was fortunate because with the work schedules and so forth, we never knew who would be there from one time to the next. I've been in other churches where we just didn't have any song leader at all. And that's worse. But uh, nonetheless, you know, you, you may judge it on talent. Or you may determine that a strong church is one where you have a lot of people that are well-educated. Remember Paul over in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, and he was talking to those brethren, and he said, uh, Now concerning sacrifices offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he does not know as he ought to know. One of the interesting things in the history of the churches of Christ as we understand them is that almost every problem that we have had of major significance, and I'm talking about doctrinal and so on and so forth, has come from well-educated people. Doesn't make any difference where it is. It's the same story over and over again. It was true in Kentucky in the 1820s. Uh, it was true with all of our schools and so forth. Uh, you know, the last few years, Butler University's had a great basketball program. You did know that 125 years ago, Butler was us. They don't have any religion up there at all now, but they used to be us. And the point is, is that in most cases, and I've been in some of those situations, the educated people are the people who are a risk to the church doctrinally, not because they're educated, but because of what Paul said, not all have knowledge, and knowledge may lead to arrogance. So all of these categories that we use to try to say, well, this is a strong church, have, for lack of a better word, some problems. And some of them really don't count at all. Now the Lord determines a strong church entirely differently. The Lord determines that a strong church is strong 
spiritually, inwardly. Remember when Jesus told the woman at the well, the Lord is spirit and those that worship him must worship in spirit. That is a key ingredient to everything that the church does. It doesn't make any difference what it is. And the simple fact of the matter is that the Lord looks upon the heart. Man looks upon the outward appearance. And the things that we just talked about is the outward appearance by which people judge the strength of the church. But the Lord has an entirely different standard. A strong church, then, is not anything that is overwhelmingly outwardly observed. That may be an indication of a strong church, but it is not the identifying mark of a strong church. The thing about a strong church is that it has a good foundation. It doesn't make any difference what area of life you're talking about. Uh, Athletes, from the feet up, uh, business, churches, buildings. I don't know about how they do it now. Engineering has changed so much. First time we lived in Dallas, Dad worked at the, at the Southland Life Tower, which at that time was the tallest building west of the Mississippi River. And they built that thing on giant ball bearings under the ground so that if you know, they had 70-mile-an-hour winds up, up there at the top. It, it wouldn't bend the building in half and break it. And so they put it on ball bearings so that it would move with the rest of the building and stay as a solid structure. What I'm trying to get us to see is, is that you know from your own experiences the building is not going to be any better than the foundation. I had Norm come out and check on one of my foundations one time. He said, well, I'm not sure why they did this. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it looks like it's been done upside down. Uh, That wasn't all that was wrong with it, but that was a problem. The simple fact of the matter is, is whether it's an institution, whether it's a, a construction, whether it's a church, you have to have a good foundation. Paul talks about the foundation of the church being the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2 and verse 20. Now, the cornerstone, you probably are already aware of this, is not on the corner. It's in the very middle of the construction. And it was cut perfectly square so that all the corners would be trued on the building. If the corners are true, the walls have to be straight. And so that's the way they did that. And what he is really telling us is, is that Christ is the absolute center around which everything else is built. The foundation, therefore, is of Christ. And it has components. It it has, uh, well... Getting old's tough, ain't it? It has a consistency. It consists of different things. I know that word is out there somewhere. In the New Testament, we see the the constituents of the foundation. Paul will tell the Corinthians, no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 
Now, the interesting thing about this is that it's like everything else with Jesus. He's more than one thing. He is the cornerstone, but Paul says he's the whole foundation. But he's not the whole foundation all by himself, although that, that passage seems to suggest that. But that is the foundation of the church. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ. And the foundation is a fact. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, you know the story. Who do men say that I am? But you, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up, Matthew 16, verse 16 says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Drop down two verses, and Jesus says, Thou art right, and upon this rock. What rock? The fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the church is built on. I mean, you take that out, you don't have a church. And even if you did, you wouldn't have any reason to have one. Jesus is the key, the fact of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lion of Judah. He is King of the Kingdom, whatever terms you want to use. But the fact of Jesus is the foundation on which the church is built. And the fact of Jesus needs to be taught. How in the world can people find out if it's not taught, now don't misunderstand me. It is possible for a person to read the New Testament. Better yet, I think it's even possible for a person to read one of the Gospels, probably Matthew, and the book of Acts, and at least know what to do to be saved and can come to the faith in Jesus Christ based on that. But the more likely situation is that a person like the Ethiopian eunuch is going to need help. Interestingly, uh, there's some, some language there that uh, makes that whole thing seem kind of strange. Philip goes up to the eunuch, and in our Bibles it said, uh, do you understand what you read? In the Greek it says, you don't understand what you're reading, do you? Which would not necessarily be taken too graciously by most people. I think it tells us something about the Ethiopian that it didn't turn him off. He, he stayed with it. But the point is, is that a lot of times people are going to need to be taught. And they need to be taught that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they need to be taught that he is the basis on which everything else exists. He is the center around which everything else revolves. The facts must be taught and the fact must be taught truthfully. I mean, every false doctrine in the history of the world has had a scriptural basis to it by just messing with the scriptures. Uh, I, I'm sure, given your background and your history, you've probably heard this, but this one guy got up and one morning he decided he needed to start reading the Bible. And so uh, he just decided he would read wherever he opened it to and he turned to the passage and he said Judas went out and hung himself and he didn't think that was such a great deal so the next morning he started in again and uh, it, it had Jesus telling the disciples go and do likewise and he didn't like that either so the third day he decided he'd try one more time and he turned to the passage and said whatsoever you do do it quickly and so he gave up. 
You can take one verse of scripture and teach almost anything. It doesn't matter. Now, that does not mean that one verse of scripture that says something is wrong, but it does tell us that we need to be careful that we deal with the scripture honestly. Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved, to handle the truth, handle the word correctly. Doctrine has to be taught in order to have a strong church. Now, a few years ago, this little terminology came in. It wasn't right then. It's not right now. We preach Christ. We don't teach doctrine. How in the world, in the name of common sense, can you teach or preach Christ and not teach or preach doctrine? Because in the first place, the word that's translated doctrine is the same word that's translated teaching in the New Testament. It's understood that teaching is doctrine, and doctrine is teaching, and if you're preaching one, you're teaching the other. You can't, you can't make that arbitrary decision and say, well, we're preaching Christ, but we don't deal with the doctrinal issues. The way they defended that was, is Christ unites and doctrine divides. The problem with that is, is when you read John 7, Jesus divided. Jesus was divisive almost everywhere he went because of what he taught. And I would admit that doctrine is divisive, but only because some people choose not to believe, not because the doctrine is taught. And we can't do anything about the ones who choose not to believe. The foundation of the church, then, is based on Jesus, who he is, and what he wants us to do. And it doesn't make any difference what the numbers are or, or anything else is going on around the church. If you're wrong on that, you cannot have a strong church. There's another point that I want us to spend just a little more time with in a little more detail. A strong church is going to be made up of strong Christians. That doesn't mean that everybody is strong in the faith. I asked Jerry to leave that song tonight because of that second verse. Strong in the Lord of hosts. The fact of the matter is, is that newborn babes in Christ are not going to be as strong spiritually as someone who is an elder in the church. At least they, we hope that that's the way it works. And a person who has been a Christian for five years is probably not going to be as strong as a person who has been a Christian for 55 years. It just makes sense. On the other hand, you have to have strong Christians in order to have a strong church. It, there's no other way around that. You say, well, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, you still had the apostles, number one. Number two, you still had the miraculous gifts and prophecy and interpretation were gifts that were used for teaching. It didn't take the church long to get built up. That's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons why they were able to have elders and deacons in some of those churches so quickly. It's because they, they were growing and they were being taught and they understood and they developed and they were strong. If you're going to have strong churches and strong Christians, you've got to have a good, fundamental, foundational knowledge of Scripture. You can't do it any other way. 
We've had program after program after program uh, over the last 50 years about growing the church. And people mean well, but the simple fact of the matter is, is that all of the programs that are being suggested weren't being used in the first century when the church had its best growth because those people were dedicated to the word and to the truth of God. The only way you can have strong Christians is to have a strong knowledge of scripture. Disciples need to be able to understand the difference between error and truth. Remember over in Ephesians 6, or, or no, I guess it was 5, where Paul warns those people that they should not be tossed about with every new wind of doctrine. I have been amazed in the last 30 years at how light our people are in Scripture. Uh, and some of the problems we've had have happened because people didn't know any better. They hadn't been taught. Now, discipline in the church, and I'm not talking about Matthew 18 and other passages, Discipline in the church demands that we have enough knowledge of Scripture to have self-discipline. Deception is the first weapon in Satan's arsenal. Anybody remember Genesis 3? He deceived Eve. And, you know, it doesn't make any difference. You, you can't count the number of times. Uh, in Scripture, let alone the experiences that you have seen and heard and know about, where people did something because they were deceived. And the reason they were deceived is because they didn't know what God said. And the reason they didn't know what God said is because they weren't taught. John, on the other hand, wrote to his, his disciples in 1 John 3 and down about verse 16, and he said, I'm writing to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth. One of our more famous preachers, who is now deceased, but I, I heard him stand in a, in a small meeting, there wasn't but 15, 20 people there, and he said to say we can know the truth is to say that we've got the ocean in a teaspoon. And his attitude for most of the years of his preaching was everybody's right and everybody's equally wrong and nobody knows which is which. Now the simple fact of the matter is, is that John says we can know the truth. Jesus said you can know the truth. Now either the inspired writer and the Lord are right or everybody else is right. But you can't both be right. And the only way we can know the truth is by study of the scriptures. We should encourage study of the scripture. And I'm talking about study. Now daily Bible reading is fine. And if you read it legitimately, you will absorb some things and, and be studying. But study requires some effort. And it's not right to call something a Bible class when the Bible isn't particularly being studied. And one of the problems, again, of the church in the past few decades has been we have neglected Bible study in Bible study. There was a large church here in the area 
many years ago. Incidentally, they're down to about one-third of what they were then. But uh, they had a large program. And one particular Sunday, they put their list of Bible classes for the next quarter uh, in their bulletin. And their preacher happened to, or their education director, whoever it was, happened to hand them out. And so we were looking, and I, I saw they had 32 Bible classes. Now that from cradle roll all the way up to, I guess, a nursing home. But, you know, nonetheless, and obviously the majority of them were adult classes. Out of those 32 classes, only five were actually textual Bible classes. The rest of them may have used the Bible a little, but that's not what they were. They were classes about how to handle your finances and classes about how to do parenting and classes about business ethics. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Now, I'm sure that their justification was, well, this will attract people to the church. I don't know whether it did or not. My implication by, by the fact that they've decreased by about 1,200 members would indicate it didn't draw too many. And I'm also thinking if you want to have those kind of classes for the community, you can still do that, but do it on Monday night. Do it on Tuesday night. Why do you have to take a Bible class time to do it? The Bible class is some of the only study that some Christians will get. And we've got to emphasize the Scriptures if we're going to have strong churches. Preachers have got to preach Scripture if you're going to have strong churches. It doesn't make any difference what else is done. If you leave out the emphasis on Scripture. Now, again, if David had been here, I would have asked him if he agreed with this, but I'll assume that he does. It's harder to preach a textual sermon than it is a topical sermon. I can, I can read a paper and come up with an idea, and I can have a sermon in an hour. I can't do that with looking at a text of anywhere from 1 to 3 to 7 to 10, whatever it is, verses, because it takes longer to actually study. Just this past week, we had a, a lady visiting with us. She, she uh, didn't grow up in church. She's a member of a denomination. She was telling me about the kind of sermons that they had in her particular denominational church. And she said it's very obvious that they just get them from a program somewhere and they just read it out and, and that's it. And she said there's never any Bible. And unfortunately, we started doing some of the same things. And it hasn't been just recently, it's been a long time back that we got away from preaching Scripture. And by preaching Scripture, I don't mean just taking one verse and then going all over it. You can do that, and occasionally that's all right. But as a general rule, we need to be looking at the text, the context, and what Jesus said and what that meant, or what the Old Testament, if you're looking there, what God said and what he meant, and how does it make a difference to us. And if you don't do that, you're not preaching Scripture, regardless of what else you may call it. We had one old gentleman that was a, a nice guy and, and a good fellow, but uh, his lesson was he would quote a passage of Scripture as the text, and then he'd preach on whatever he wanted to. And usually there wasn't any more Bible in it. Now, the fact of the matter is we need to preach, we need to study Scripture if we're going to have a strong church. The simple truth is that we need 
to understand that God's Word is the seed that grows the church. Again, we don't grow the church. And I don't care whether you talk about bus ministries or television programs or door knocking or whatever you want to do. And all of them are good. But we don't grow the church. Paul said, I planted, polished, watered. God gave the increase. Now, how did he do that? He did that by the preaching of the word. This is the key to the strength of the church. And as long as we're there, we need to look at what Paul said that identifies a strong church. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to First uh, Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, and then starting at about verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, let patience, uh, have patience with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But in everything, carefully hold fast to that which is good. Refrain from everything that is evil. Now, if we do that doctrinally, we can also do it practically. But we can't do it practically if we don't do it doctrinally. Because we won't know. We can't make the distinction. But in this simple little text, with all those little short phrases, Paul said, this is what a strong church looks like. This is what a strong church does. This is what makes a strong church. Ultimately, we have to rely on God for a strong church. Doesn't make any difference what else we do. If he's not there, have you ever thought what it sounds like to just say the church off? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't even sound right. But that's what you've got if you leave Christ out of the picture. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us about this vision that he had. Some people, some people have said that we didn't know who it was. Yes, we do know because the chapter tells us. Because after he gets through describing the vision, Paul then goes on to say, to keep me from being overly proud, God blessed me, and I'm using the Texas translation, with the thorn in the flesh. And again, we don't know what that was. It doesn't matter. And he said, I kept praying to God to get rid of this, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And from that I learned that I could depend on the strength of Christ. And then he comes down to the next verse, and he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be filled. Again, over in Philippians 4, Paul writes Philippians. Paul is awaiting trial. He thinks he's going to get free. He doesn't really know. He writes to the Philippians, and finally he says, 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then in Ephesians 6, Paul's, or yeah, verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul says, be strong in the strength which God supplies. The only way you can have a strong church is strong Christians, strong in the word, strong by the word, strong because of the word, knowledgeable. Remember when the writer to the Hebrews told those people, you know, we need to talk about, and I hesitate to even mention Melchizedek because then somebody wants to know about him. But, but uh, I hesitate to talk about Melchizedek. By now, you ought to be teachers, but you have need that someone should feed to you the sincere milk of the word. They hadn't grown. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't, they didn't uh, grow, and they weren't strong in the word. If you're going to build a strong church, you have to have members who are strong in the word. Nothing else will accomplish what you want. Now, I'm going to disappoint a bunch of you because this is only going for about 32 minutes, but I'm not going to say anything else because I don't have anything else to say. So in just a minute, Jerry will be leading us in that invitation song. And if you have some need to respond to the invitation, Lord, in a public manner this evening, if you'd let us know while together we're standing and singing. Oh, do not let the <clears throat>